Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Nurture Your Zest. I'm your host, Ashley King, and I will introduce you to a wealth of interesting, fascinating individuals from all walks of life who will share their stories, how they've overcome challenges, and you will find out their top tips for success. Through this podcast, you can gain tips to grow and change your life and the way you see the world and help you to nurture your zest. Hello and welcome to Nurture Your Zest. I'm delighted to be in a new space today because I've been invited to the lovely Catherine's home. So Catherine's home Sunday name, we'll we'll hear more in a moment. Um, But Catherine Paylor-Bent is an amazing adaptive fashion designer. She has many different skills that she uses for good. And I'm really excited to be invited to her home and able to have this chat so thank you so much for inviting me to this beautiful space thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast and welcome to seated towers and seated towers is super cute because i'm at flamingo heights and you're at seated towers and that is just a match made in heaven exactly meant to be it is so tell us um do you prefer catherine or do you prefer cat what would you like well um catherine is my sunday name and that's what i get when i'm in trouble um, so I go by cat normally. <laughs> well, well, we go with cat. I mean, mischief's my middle name, so um, I, I like I like the cat. We'll yeah. we'll, we'll keep the the Sunday names for yes. when we need to, you know, put those hats on. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself for those who are watching and listening. You know, who are you, cat? What is your uh, what is your the stuff you do every day? Yeah. Uh, we'll get into your story in a little bit, but who are you if you were to uh, have a list of titles or, oh, or ways you want to be known? The list of titles and the hats I wear are, are quite numerous, um, but I'm an adaptive fashion designer. So I design and make bespoke outfits for the disabled community. Um, I also run a consultancy which does a lot of accessibility audits and public speaking. Um, for those that are listening and can't see me. I'm a wheelchair user. Um, So I use my lived experience of being made disabled and being the parent of an autistic child to help businesses understand how to communicate with us and what is the best way to interact with a disabled customer. So really important labels hats titles to have um, but also very different skills so it's a very yes. wide range of skills and then what you said there most importantly is lived experience so you you mentioned that you were made disabled and mm. this is a story that really touched me when we first met um because you know i was quite surprised um when you talked about how you became disabled and what actually happened for you so would you feel comfortable sharing some of that story mm, definitely um, so I was a new mum. My not so little boy 
was only six months old and I picked him up out of a playpen and in doing that I herniated a disc onto my spinal column. Um, and the surgery to repair that damage um, went wrong and I was in hospital for nine months um, and it left me in a wheelchair. I mean, I'm just processing what you're saying and I've heard this story before and I'm, I'm not yet a mom. I would love to have that opportunity, but to have the excitement of being a new mother and also the stress and, and all those other things yeah. that come with it. But, you know, the, the caregiving responsibilities that come with that, all of those things that, you know, in your mind when you're going to become a mom and you dream of it, you don't dream that in six months time you're going to find yourself disabled and away from your child for nine months and not having that bond that you were looking forward to with your new baby. So how was that experience for you? I mean, how did you cope with the with the how did you feel at the time? Um, it was extremely traumatic. Um, I think because I'd worked in nursing before, I used to work on the wards as a care assistant. So I understood the journey, but being on the other side of the uniform, I don't like. <laughs> I much prefer to be caring for people than being cared for. Um, I was really fortunate because my parents moved in with my husband. So Tom was looked after and was fine and they brought him to visit me every single day. Um, but bonding and trying to process what was going on with my body and missing all of his firsts, I don't think it hits you till later on. Um, so the first time I knew he was walking, my mum brought him around the corner and just let go of his hand and he sort of walked towards me. And that broke my heart um, because they are the things that as a mum, I should have been doing. Um, and it was lovely to see, but at the same time, it hurt so much. Um, and even now when friends have babies and they start to toddle, I just get that flashback to, I miss my baby doing that. Um, so it's still there in the back of my mind, but yeah, you get through it. You have to. You have to. And also the the fact that it was such a forced circumstance that you weren't expecting. So I'm curious, do you feel resentment about the hospital, um, your operation going wrong? I mean, is that something you ever reflect on and think, gosh, if they got it right, it mm -hmm. could have been totally different? You know, or, yeah. or maybe if you, do you ever think, well, if I bent down a different way or if something, do you have a lot of what ifs? I did have a lot of what ifs um, and they went on for a long time because with spinal injury and the type of nerve damage I've got, it repairs so slowly. So the the um, goalposts were always being changed. So it's like, well, give it to 18 months, it might repair. And that didn't happen. Well, give it to three years. And then we got, well, give it to seven years. After seven years, if you've got no function back, you won't. And so you're always holding on, but at the back of your mind, you know you've got no function, so it's probably not coming back. Um, and we got to seven years, and they're like, okay, you've hit seven years now. And you go through the trauma of all of that loss all over again, because suddenly this is forever, and I've got to live with it. And, yeah, that so seven years was a really 
difficult period. Um, but we worked through it. I've got a fantastic husband who has stuck by my side and been everywhere with me. He's seen me at my worst. He's seen me resuscitated. He's come and said his goodbyes. And he's still here, bless his soul. <laughs> um, but so without him, I, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, but we got to seven years and it's like, okay, this is forever. We've got to make this work. I had a little boy who had been diagnosed autistic ADHD. So I had to be there for him. I had to wake up every morning and make sure I fought as hard as I could for him because no one else was going to fight for him. Um, and it's like, this is forever. Let's just make it work. Let's do the best that we can. And if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have the career I've got now. So in a very warped, strange way, I'm happy to be disabled because it's opened me up to an amazing community and I can help where other people can't. So it's a warped sense of I'm okay with it. It happened. It wasn't great, but that's life. Let's just get on with it and let's fight. I think it's a, a true example of courage of having to you know go well hang on this is the circumstances i'm in so what am i going to do about it what am mm -hmm. i going to do with this and you know that's so powerful i'm also thinking and reflecting about something that i know we've discussed before and something that's really a key issue that comes in my mind a lot so you know i'm a survivor of um trauma so i have post-traumatic stress disorder and sometimes people will say to me, you're so inspiring that you've been able to achieve that even though you have PTSD or even though you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, any of these things. And it's this idea of inspiration porn, you know, of you've been through this, but now everything's fine and you're just doing so well. And even though you've got all these difficult things, you're doing so well. And that's great. And sometimes it's wonderful to have that validation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think for people who don't have challenges or who don't see the journey, yeah. they don't actually see how how difficult some of those steps are to have equity mm -hmm. or to, to get, you know, um, to, to have a level playing field. So I'm really excited to hear a bit about your fashion in a few minutes, but I also want to hear you know, how does that kind of feeling, how does that feel for you when someone says, oh, Kat, you're so inspiring? You know, does that make you feel warm and happy or does it yeah. also frustrate you? What What are your thoughts on this idea of the disabled community being inspiration porn? Yeah, I, I struggle with this. When I'm doing my everyday life and I'm shopping or I'm doing a school run, I'm not doing anything different to anybody else. So I'm not an inspiration. I'm just getting on with my life. Um, but I think there's times when I do things and actually they are inspiring and they do show what's possible. So at that point, yeah, I'm quite happy to be called inspiration because if that's going to make someone else in a similar situation think, you know what, she's got on with her life, so it is possible. Great. 
But when I'm doing my everyday things, come on, guys, <laughs> it's just life like everybody else. And there's nothing inspiring about that. You don't walk up to the next person in the queue and go, e, you've got your shop and you're really inspiring. So why do it to me? <laughs> it's like, you don't. It's also that sense of pity, right? It's, yeah. It's like when people maybe, this is something that I, I never realized until I, I started having friends who, who were disabled or who were having all kinds of different struggles, but where they would say to me, you know, the, the thing that I hate the most is when people look at me and smile and it's patronizing and mm -hmm. it's, and I mean, do you ever experience that or have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Or people come go, I'm so sorry. Or can I pray for you? Wow. And it's like, I'm not sorry. If I wasn't in a wheelchair, I wouldn't be out my house. So actually my wheels are my freedom and my independence. They're my legs that have allowed me to go play football with my little boy or take him to the park. So I don't see my disability as holding me back. Society holds me back in the fact that it's just not accessible. Buildings hold me back and disable me, but I don't see me as the disabling factor. I love the way that you've reframed that. And I think that as well will have taken a lot of courage to actually say, well, hang on, I'm not the issue here. It's the system and it's the structures of society. And I mean, this is a really important thing when we look at the purple pound. So, you know, for those who don't know, we've never heard of that phrase before, you may be able to explain it better than I can. Um, but there is a lot of, you know, uh, amazing, um, well, first of all, there's, there's some incredibly talented people like yourself who are making amazing clothes and doing things differently that serve an entire population of people that people aren't aware of. But also, if we don't have accessible buildings, accessible restaurants, bars, you know, um, spaces for conferences, for networking events, for any of these things, we're not actually serving a whole part of our, our population. So can you share a little bit about the Purple Pound, but also what it means for you in terms of accessibility or, or going into a building? What are some of the struggles that you might have? Mm. So I'll start with the Purple Pound. So the Purple Pound is the spending power of the disabled community. And a lot of times the disabled community aren't seen as ideal clients for businesses. But one in five people in the UK are disabled. So you are going to have disabled customers. You are going to have disabled staff. And the purple pound is the spending power we bring to a business. So in the UK alone, that is estimated at two billion pound a month. That's without bringing caregivers and family and friends in. So you are talking about a huge, huge amount of money. And it's not a niche. A lot of people talk about disability as it being a niche. Um, one in five isn't a niche. <laughs> that is a lot of people. And when you bring caregivers and family and friends, you're talking about 40% of the population. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge amount of money. Um, and it's a, a part of the community, that, the part of the mm, words, population that is just missed out and not dealt with. Um, so I'm really passionate about helping businesses understand that it's out there 
And I don't know many businesses that wouldn't like a cut of two billion pound a month. It's it's a sizable chunk of money. Um, so that is why I'm passionate to help people understand that it's out there. And once you make your business accessible, we will shout about it because there's so few businesses that, that are accessible or buildings. As soon as we find one, we want to tell everybody about it because it's like, hey, look, this is great. Come shop here or come visit here because they've thought about us and accessibility is not just a tick box for them. So, yeah, it's really, it's understanding that we are an important part of the community, of the population and we bring a lot of spending power with us. Um and from a networking point of view, I'm I'm a bit naughty, really. I very much like to be the one that asks the hard questions. And I'm not shy about putting my hand up and asking what their role in disability is or how inclusive are they. But I'm also not frightened to be the one disabled person sat in the middle of the room and waiting to see who comes up and talks to me because I find that's quite telling really on how how people feel about disability and how people feel about interacting with us. Um, and the majority don't like it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really valid point because I know we've met, you know, at various different events and there have been times where, you know, you felt like the only one in the room and no one's coming to say hello or, and it's it's crazy that we don't I don't know if crazy is the right term I'll, I'll take that back it's I think it's really troubling that we don't see you know people for who they are and what 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 they are what they are to the world besides the the labels that we see or stereotypes and things like this um I love that you do that I love that you ruffle feathers it's something I talk about a lot it's one of my key values you know challenge the status quo which is why you know we're having this conversation because I think so many people can learn from your experience but also really realize as business owners we have a duty to our communities you know and if one in five people are disabled you know we really need out of our game so I know for me for instance I'm really frustrated at the moment because I've got this beautiful studio but there are uh, business circumstantial things to do with how the um, the businesses run outside of my control. So I am one of six businesses in a you know a space, and I'm looking at at the moment. Can I get any funding to get some um, research done or, or to find out? accessibility audit you know how accessible is the space and it's something that I know we're not and it's really really frustrating on the one hand it means I can come and have an amazing chat and Yay. coffee here which is awesome and I love that but on another hand you know we should be able to have when we have events we should be able to have guests you know from all walks of life and that's really important so it's something I'm looking at myself as a business owner but it also I don't like ticking boxes. So what I have done is in the past, I would have said, you know, I try to be inclusive and I try to do this and I try to do that. And I've sat and reflected on that a lot over the last few years because I've thought, well, hang on, you're not inclusive from an accessibility point of view. Yes, you have a lift, but how does someone get into the building, you know? And yes, you have a disabled toilet, um, but it's not 
actually accessible. You know, you'd have to have someone to open the door for someone and then wait yeah. outside. And that's a bit weird, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. and it's so it's these things which are at the moment outside of my control, but I'm doing what I can to fix. But I've also been thinking about things like faith. If we say we're inclusive, well, then if we just do events with alcohol, that's not very inclusive. So it's it's actually looking at it from quite a broad um, focus, you know, mm. but also thinking about the fact of what is a tick box and what's not. Yeah. And on this note around funding and things like this, I would say that there is actually there's not as much investment in making things accessible as there should be. So you look at, I know, for instance, I have ADHD, three year waiting lists for people to get diagnosed. You know, that's an incredible amount of time. You have people who are 60 years old who would really benefit from taking medication. We're supposed to be working till we're 68 or 70 now, but they told, oh, well, a woman in her 60s doesn't need you know, just doesn't need meds because there's just no purpose for you to have it. So, but actually the, the help it can give someone in being able to manage their tasks and activities, you know, my business has turned around since I was able to access ADHD support and medication. Mm -hmm. So my question here is you're in a, as a, um, accessibility and disability advisor and a consultant you're actually in a very unique position um because you're not only have lived experience of a physical disability but you also have lived experience of supporting you know a, a child and, and being a parent mm -hmm. to a um a, a child who has neurological differences so my question here is from your perspective and you know with what you've gone through with tom and you're welcome to share any of your journey with that but how accessible has it been? How easy has it been to get the support for yourselves as a family? Um, it hasn't. Mm. Um, and you've got to fight. And one thing that frustrates me more than anything is it's the most vulnerable in society that are fighting the hardest to get the support. You mentioned the waiting list is very similar for children. Um, and if you bring in the fact that so Tom has um a lot of mental health issues he's been suicidal he's made an attempt on his life and when that happened you automatically think right we'll call the crisis line and they'll jump and they'll want to save this little boy uh, and it doesn't happen um so 18 months down the line well, it'll be two years actually now um he still hasn't had the support he needs we've still got to keep him safe as parents and as a disabled mum wanting to keep my child safe is my ultimate goal but not being backed up by anybody is a very lonely place and it's really frustrating that the system is broken it's completely broken and the support isn't out there um and it's frustrating because we're not seen as individuals, we're seen as a condition or we're seen as a number. And I think the system has lost the fact that we are valuable members of society. We've got talents that really we wanna share. Um, so for example, with Tom, he can get hyper-focused, that focus when he's on an obsession is just pinpoint accurate. And his memory, he could tell you uh, for plane crashes, for example, 
who the pilot was, how many died in the plane crash, where they were sitting, what the problem was. And if if that could be moulded into a work environment, who wouldn't benefit from having that sort of knowledge and hyper-focus? But it's just, it's not encouraged and it's not nurtured. And to me, that is such a loss because these these children are our next generation. They're our next leaders. And if we're not nurturing them now, they're just going to become other statistics of people that are unemployed or people that are on benefits. And that's not what we should be teaching our kids. We need to teach our kids that they're valuable, that they really have got talents that can be beneficial to society and your only aim in life is not to qualify to be on benefits that's not a life goal that's not what we should be telling our kids that that's the only thing they're good for but unfortunately because the system's so broken that is all they're hearing and that is all that they're being told and it's just it's sad and it's wrong um, and it, it it takes me back to, so recently I was in hospital um, and the consultant came and asked me what I'd been doing before my injury um, and I said, oh, I drove us to the venue and he went, you can drive? Like, yes, I can drive. Uh, and I, I got a sense of, I knew where the conversation was going to lead. And then I said, uh, I'm also the founder and CEO of two very successful businesses. And his face dropped. And I'm like, just because I'm disabled doesn't mean I sit at home and do nothing all day. I, I am a human being and I, I run a business. And, and the look of shock, and I'm like, and it takes us back to networking. The fact I'm in a wheelchair it's irrelevant. If we look at people first, then actually the talents that we bring are immense. And if you come and talk to me in networking, you might learn something that actually turns your business around. Um, but people are too scared and people don't. I get they don't want to say the wrong thing, but at the same time saying nothing is actually worse than saying the wrong thing. I'd rather people come and say the wrong thing. I think that's so interesting. There's so much you said there that I want to comment on. One of the things, just before I forget, around what you've said around people saying the wrong thing, I actually saw an interesting debate about this in LinkedIn and some comments the other day. And it was talking about um, language and what we say. So I'm trying to learn how I can have less ableist language. Um, in fact, I've done it in this episode and I didn't even realize. So I said, you know, something was crazy, but actually that's something I'm trying to rethink about how I use that word or that phrase. You know, we say things are crazy busy. They so mental, you know, and we have words in our language and in our vocabulary that we, we use, but we don't think about the way they could make someone feel. And so that's something I'm looking at with myself, but also, you know, um, getting things wrong and having the courage to do that and saying, look, I'm learning, you know, um, what would you, what's the best way for me to say this? At the same time, I also think that it's not up to you as a disabled person to have to educate people. Mm -hmm. We should have a 
the actually the I guess is it the gumption that the the sense of uh belief in ourselves to or the value in ourselves to actually go and make the time to learn about these things it's a similar issue that I find um you know I've done a lot of work around race relations and you know how many people of color um you know particularly uh, I've read so many incredible books and um, one of the ones that I'm coming back to is um why I don't speak to white people of our race um and that book is really valuable for anyone who hasn't read it but in that book it talks about how you know um the language we use and the things we say the microaggressions tiny little things and so if you think about Tom and the example you gave I mean what amazing gifts he has around problem solving puzzles seeing patterns you know being able to remember complex information and very detailed information so in an organization the analytical skills the data science but it's about giving people the opportunity to do those things and it's also you know i think we need to reframe the word lazy you know that was a big word i heard growing up um in school you know if you just applied yourself you know but i was bored out of my mind you know because i wasn't getting to the answers the same way as everyone else so i wouldn't get the marks but my answers were right so it's it it's just a different way of thinking and i think if we have support structures and systems in place this can make such a big difference but i'd like to ask you as well so as a disabled mum you know as as someone who has got lots of hats to wear you you've got two successful businesses you've just been in hospital um but you're still your businesses are running how do you what are your support structures around you what do you do to kind of make your life easier and um you know are there any things in your family or for Tom that you do that are different that anyone listening could learn from mm, well so from a physical point of view i've got pas um so they help with my day to day running of my life um with all sorts of things um and I have those there in every day and I've got night cover as well. So without the, the my girls, I'd be helpless. Um, and some of my girls I've had for 13 years, so they're not workers anymore. They, I don't employ them, they're just great mates. Um, and they know how we tick and they know how we do things and they're in the house, I don't have to think about them because yeah, they're just part of the family. Um, I've also got, um, so Katie that you've met today, she helps with some of my sewing. So we've been in hospital recently. I lost the use of my right arm, which means I haven't even tried sewing yet, <laughs> but sewing and driving is out at the moment. Um, but I can give her projects because she's able to, to pick that up for me. Um, and without the help of my family and friends, uh, I doubt we could be anywhere near here. Um, so my husband, Nathan, he he works really hard at working full-time in data science and data protection, um, but he also looks after Tom and I. Um, so he's number one carer, along with Shadow, Shadow Dog, who uh, is Tom's autism assistance dog. So we have a network that we can pull together and call on and is available to us. Um, but when I am in hospital and I'm quite fortunate, so this last hospital visit, it would have been 13 months since I had been in hospital. Previously, I was in every four to six weeks with infections. So trying to run a business was really difficult. 
Um, but I have my phone with me. I always take my um, Chromebook and it's not unusual for me to do meetings from my hospital bed or answer emails um, and just try and keep things ticking over. Um, so, yeah, it's. I think it's an art running a business being disabled. And I think we bring so much learning, um, resilience, empathy, perseverance. <laughs> There's so many qualities that as disabled entrepreneurs we've we bring to the game and we we have to see life in a different light. We have to it's like, do you think outside the box? I don't even have a box. So, you know, it's like... There's no roof on your box. Yeah, exactly. What box? <laughs> um, so we just think about life differently and, and we have to go from there. But it's fun and it's challenging at times. I think those are beautiful reflections you've got there about the gifts and skills that you've got that make you different. And I think those are all wonderful things to celebrate. I love that you've got a support system around you and that is so valuable. And it also reminds us, regardless of how individual circumstances around ability or not, um, the people around us, our relationships really matter. Mm. Something I'm remembering because I've just been working so hard at the moment. I've really not made time for my friends or family or for me, for, mm -hmm. because if we are not at our best in ourselves how can we give to others and do our best work you know so it's a really valuable uh, reminder for me and for anyone listening you know the value of your support network is really you know so special but at the same time also what you give to others you know as in um you've got friends who are gifting you that time and I know that you do so much for others too and you've got such a big heart so it is a reciprocal thing you know it's it's and and that's something that I think uh, as you know you see this a lot in business and, and you might see that at those networking events sometimes where you do just get people who come up and throw business cards in your face yeah. and you're like <laughs> well hang on you haven't even taken a minute to hear anything about me you don't know what I could add value to or, you know it's it's that time to nurture relationships mm -hmm. so and also I know that we didn't mention it but you've got some very snazzy technology uh, hacks so you use Alexa Echo Dot do you you an Amazon home is that right to say yep yeah. yeah so what kind of things does that help you with oh Lord, so my, my husband's a bit of a tech geek uh, and when we adapted this house, it was to be a smart home. Uh, he was he used to work for British Gas, so he trialled a lot with Hive and, and smart home technology. Um, so Alexa, we didn't realise how much... It sort of ruled our life till you go on holiday and you can't ask her questions or you can't turn the light off. So... Oh, she's she, talking in the background, actually, because yeah. I mentioned her name. Of course. Um, but she, um, so she's in every room and um, she turns lights on and off for us. She controls our central heating. Uh, we've got a little pond. She controls that. So we've, we've tried to take touch points out. We've tried to make the house as accessible as possible. But at the same time, she is a massive help for Tom. So if Tom has a question, he just asks her and he's getting the information in seconds. Um, and he's learned so much from Alexa. 
jokes are terrible, mind. I just have to add that. <laughs> well, my, my jokes are rubbish. <laughs> my favorite question for her is, "Are you spying on me?" Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. a good one. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think that's really, really helpful to know. I, I've never invested or explored into that yet but I have wondered about it because in the ADHD community it's talked about all the time to help with memory and reminders and all that kind of thing so I think tech can really help us but at the same time we also need to make tech inclusive so things like this you know I'm thinking at the moment what is my website accessible um in fact one of the hardest lessons I've had in terms of accessibility and inclusion I I did a really fantastic uh, event that I loved um and it was about it was called imagine a world and it was a TEDx conference and it was online during lockdown and I was really proud of it but actually we didn't subtitle the content um what I didn't know at the time is you can actually give instructions to your participants virtually to have live subtitling through Google and stuff like that um but actually it meant that in some ways we weren't accessible and I really regret that and it was a big learning curve because I've started to realize well actually when you put social media clips up they need to have captions on them so there's so much that we can learn all the time and even those who have disabilities don't always get it right. It's a learning curve, but again, it's not the responsibility of the disabled community to educate others. And that work comes with it, comes with a cost. It should be paid, it should be consultancy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's actually supported financially because your lived experience is valuable, you know? So I I definitely think that's something I'd like to see differently from organizations. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask before we sort of wrap up, is there anything that you would love to get off your chest or off your heart about about accessibility, about disability or work um, that you think could be different? I think um, when people see disabled people in work, a lot of the times their head goes, oh, it's charity. They're doing it because it makes them feel good or, or you get invited to do things because you'll get a bit of exposure. Um, but unfortunately, my mortgage company doesn't pay my mortgage with exposure or love or feel good. Um, they or only prayers. take cash. Yeah. <laughs> or prayers and hopes and well wishes yeah, exactly. and good vibrations. All yeah, those things all are the, very sweet, but yeah. they don't they don't pay the mortgage. No. Yeah. Um and if we're coming to you with a proposal, we expect that we will be getting paid for the work that we do. Mm. Um and that's a huge issue is is getting people to understand we don't do this for the good of our health. We are employed in exactly the same way and we expect payment in exactly the same way. And our lived experience has been hard fought. It's not something that we have, well, me personally, I didn't go to university to learn this. I didn't go to college to know what it was like to be disabled. I've had to live this and it's had a cost and it's had a trauma. But what we have learned from that process is priceless and we want to share it with you. Um, And I think it's really important that if you are looking at inclusion and accessibility, you do it with a disability consultant because it's not something you can read a book about. It's not something that you can learn. It's something that comes with time and experience. Um, So I was on a webinar yesterday and they said, what's your advice? And I said, employ us, 
please come and employ us, come and ask the question. And I, you mentioned earlier about accessibility and your website and things. No one yet has got it perfect. We cannot be accessible and inclusive to everybody because there's always going to be the people that you forget that that's life. But what we've got to try and do, we've got to start. Please just start to be accessible, inclusive. Please show us that it's not a tick box exercise. It's not a hashtag for 2022. It's something that you're going to live by and breathe by and make sure that you are trying to be as inclusive to the majority. Um, and we will thank you forever because even big business isn't trying to be accessible, inclusive. Um, you see and this just start. You see this with the, the climate, you know, conferences where you know the accessible, sorry, the accessibility um, routes weren't even available, you know, for exactly. ministers who needed them, you know, yeah. to to be there. Um, and this is crazy that in governance we're still messing up in that in that mm -hmm. way, um, and it goes to show as well how often so many groups of marginalised communities are afterthought, you know, yes. at the end of the day. So one yeah. thing I didn't ask was about your fashion and the stuff you do. So you've actually been at you know London Fashion Week and all over. So could you share a bit about seated sewing, but also? what kind of fashion people in a wheelchair might need that might be different or the types of work you do um, for, you know, uh, the disabled community? Yeah, so seeded sewing came up. I've always had a passion for sewing. My grandma was a seamstress, so she taught us there was always a machine on her dining room table. Um, but when I became disabled and a wheelchair user, there are no clothes for us. The assumption is we don't work all that we stay in bed. So if you want pajamas and joggy bottoms, you're fine. They're covered. Uh, if you want to be medicalized or look like you're in a nursing home, no offense to old people, but I'm young and I don't want to look like my grandma. Um, so there was nothing out there. So I started um, making my own clothes again. I uh, pattern hack, which is taken normal standard clothes and I'd uh, alter them to make them suitable. Um, and then as people saw what I was doing and heard more about it, it sort of grew legs. Um, so now I make bespoke outfits for the disabled community. So uh, people that are missing limbs, people of short stature, and it's all made to measure. Um, and the joy to see someone put a an outfit on that is actually made for them, it, it brings tears to your eyes because these people can't go and buy from the high street. And fashion is so important. What we wear affects our emotions and our disposition so much more than people understand and recognize. So if we're uncomfortable in our clothes, we're uncomfortable in our body, that is gonna reflect in what we do in our day and how we present ourselves. Um, and fashion is so important. So I'm, I'm fighting very hard and being very vocal that we need fashion on the high street that's suitable 
for disabled people, so adaptive fashion. Um, and yeah, I'm, I have got a, a line that I'm working on, um, collaborating with Isaac Harvey, who I think you know from LinkedIn, um, and a couple of other designers. And next February, we hope to have a runway of adaptive fashion, which is, we are hoping is going to change the narrative. We are hoping that it's going to be the big bang that the fashion industry needs to understand that we need disabled models. Um, in the media, you only see disability 0.6% of the time. So if we don't see ourselves in, our, in the media, where do we fit in society? Um, and we're going to show them that different bodies can wear the same outfit and can look cool and feel great. So that is what February is going to be. But I'm down there in a couple of weeks supporting the wonderful Victoria Jenkins, who is the first disabled designer to be in British Fashion Council. And she has got her first runway show at London Fashion Week. So I'm so excited to be able to support someone that is fighting so hard as well. So we are out there and we are shouting <laughs> and we are determined that people will understand why adaptive fashion is needed and get it onto the high street. <laughs> Absolutely. It's beautiful. I love what you're doing. I'm really excited about these upcoming months. It sounds like a lot of work yes. to prepare for all the days. Um, your show and your line with Isaac sound amazing. Uh, if I can support you when it's the right time, let me know because I'd Thank love to you. support you with that. Um, yeah. If you need sponsors or a, a promotional podcast or whatever, Wonderful. whatever helps. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you. there's just one question I have to ask, which mm. is what is your number one word to nurture your zest? Um, ooh, <laughs> everyone makes this those in the question. I didn't, I didn't. And so I always say this because for me, you know, we all have adversity we go through. So we, you know, we have those trickly, uh, trickly, prickly situations in life. That's why yeah. there's always cactuses. cactuses. Um, but, you know, what is the thing that gets you out of bed and that lights you up and gives you your zest? Passion. Passion. Mm. Passion for changing the narrative passion for educating people and passion to show how wonderful disabled people can be yeah i love that thank you so much thanks for your time thank you so much i really enjoyed it With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.